this is our uh, this week's Sussex Development Lecture. We're really lucky to have uh, Laurie Lee here with us. Laurie is the director of the Africa of Africa or the Africa Group within the Global Policy and Advocacy uh, team at the Gates Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's <coughs> based in London, um, and it's great to have him here. He used to work at uh, DFID. Uh, and he also, um, he was the deputy director of, deputy director and head of the International Trade Department. Um, before that, he was working with, he was a deputy director and foreign policy advisor on Africa to uh, Tony Blair when he was prime minister. And he had a big role in the uh, G8 presidency summit, the Glen Eagle summit. Um, and he's done lots of stuff, basically. Uh, and I, I know him because he's been a really good uh, friend to IDS in terms of being an intellectual, uh, critical friend, uh, telling us when he thinks we're doing things that are silly and think when we're doing things that are good, and just being a really good resource person to go to on aid and development and, uh, and policy and strategy. So he's got a vast knowledge of all this stuff. Uh, and I don't know if you studied international development or not. I'll tell you in a minute. Um, but uh, he's asking a question, why study development? It's probably a question you're asking yourself <laughs> 10 weeks in. Um, and I'm going to hand it back over to you, Laurie. Thank you for coming. Laurie, you may want to mix it up. Normally it's 30 minutes of presentation and lots of discussion, but you may want to mix it up. So over to you. Thanks very much, Lawrence. I, I will try and mix it up a bit. I'm, I'm not um, used to giving lectures, so uh, I will probably try and make this more of a, a conversation with all of you, um, if I can. Um, so hello, and uh, it's nice to see you all. This is uh, great fun and a, a, a pleasure for me, and I am um, uh, feel slightly bad that you're all here instead of uh, meeting your deadlines, um, but, but grateful to you for, for coming along. Um, yeah, so uh, Lawrence has mentioned the, uh, the title we eventually agreed in. Hey, Richard, how are you doing? Um, of why study development. And in fact, um, Lawrence and Hannah and I traded a few other ideas for what we might talk about first. And we're thinking about the, the post 2015 process and the G8 next year um, in the UK and things like is aid good or bad? And what was the implication of the end of the Cold War for Africa? And I was th as I was thinking about what to um, uh, write about, this um, talk point, which I'm sure several of you have seen, came up on the Global Development um, website called Why Study Development. And I thought, well, I'd, I'll have a look at that. It'll give me some insights into some of the um, questions and comments that, um, that maybe some of you or um, other students like you um, are thinking about might help me think a little bit about what you would be interested in. And so I, I read the blog and then um, all of the comments on it. And um, I thought it was very interesting that almost all of the comments turned out to either be reading suggestions, which that's what they'd asked for, um, or kind of worries in one way or another about whether studying development was actually going to lead to a job. Um, and this is just one of those comments which kind of sums up uh, those two main things. Um, uh, which came in. And um, it just struck me that was a, quite a legitimate uh, question. Now, um, 
you all, of course, have your reasons for studying development and coming on this course. And um, I'm not going to try and talk about whether or not those are the right or, or, or wrong reasons. Um, but as I was saying, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather have a conversation with you than just give a lecture. And um, it seemed to me that this was a, a subject or a question um, that could hopefully provoke a lively conversation, because I'm sure you do also all have um, some good, strong views on why you are studying development. But it also seemed to me, actually, potentially quite an interesting lens, some of the, uh, this question and some of the comments on the, on the talk point. Um, for some bigger issues which do kind of uh, um, concern people working in development, um, including some of the ones uh, I mentioned earlier that um, Lawrence and I were discussing as potential topics as well. Um, so that's why I picked that overall subject and hopefully, as I say, we'll use it as a frame not just to talk about um, uh, studying development but as a way to get into some bigger issues about um, some of the big debates that are alive in development. Um, Lawrence just said he wasn't sure if I'd studied development, so I thought maybe I would start with a very quick introduction um, to myself. Um, and I, I didn't formally study development as an academic um, subject. Um, I, uh, I did, uh, did go to university, I got my bachelor's, and I, I started a postgrad course. Um, um, and um, unlike, I'm sure, all of you, I, I didn't finish it. Um, I, uh, I decided actually that um, I'd maybe done enough studying and decided to go and uh, get a job and move down to London. Um, and I, I just applied to the civil service and uh, got into, um, uh, into DFID uh, um, that way. And... Um, Early on in my career, you go to this place called Sunningdale, which is now called the Civil Service College, um, and they teach you how to be a civil servant. And they put you together with all sorts of other new graduates who have joined all sorts of other ministries um, to be a civil servant at the same time. And lots and lots of them were coming up to me saying, how, how did you get the job in Diffie? How did you get the job in Diffie? And they were in agriculture and all these other places. And lots of them had done a development MA and they'd done a fellowship in another country feeling increasingly guilty about the fact that um, uh, I'd, I'd got the job in um, uh, DFID anyway. Um, and I think it kind of got me feeling a bit kind of insecure and nervous about whether I was really entitled to this job. And so um, I, did, I did briefly flirt with um, trying to do a bit of s studying on it and uh, did a distance course with um, SOAS, as it happened. Um, um, and did that for a year, um, and um, yeah, I sort of scraped through that. <laughs> um, but so really, I learned I learned my development on the on the job, and as um, uh, as Lawrence was saying, I, I've had the the good fortune to have a, a really interesting variety of uh, jobs, both in the UK government and in the last uh, nearly five years with the with the Gates Foundation. Um, a lot of it on Africa, um, but a lot of it thinking about also European policies towards uh, developing countries. Um, and um, so I, I think there are many ways of getting into development, um, uh, and studying is not the only way. Um, 
But I don't want you to think that I think that therefore studying it's a, is, not a, is not a good idea. Uh, I think it is. But it, it does maybe give me a slightly different perspective to yours as we have this conversation. Um, and, uh, and hopefully that will be, be interesting. Um, okay, so I want to I'm, I'm going to sort of raise four issues which seem to me came out of the, um, uh, the, the talk point and which I think um, uh, this is an interesting uh, way of looking at it. Uh, and the first is a kind of dichotomy between um, being a generalist and being an expert. So this was um, one of the other quotes on the talk point. Ho hopefully you can read it. Do I need to read it out for the online folks, do you think? Does that help? So someone said, if you're looking to get a job in development after graduating, I would strongly advise acquiring other skills such as teaching, agricultural science, etc. as well. Currently there are many applicants to my development organisation but who are unable to contribute much apart from administrative support, which can usually be provided locally. It's unlikely you will get a management post straight after graduation without these other skills. Um, so I was just going to ask. I was going to ask a question, try and sort of kick off the conversation part a little bit here. So, in the studying that you're doing, do you feel that you are um, studying, as it were, development generally, or are you becoming an expert on some aspect uh, of development? What, what's the kind of feeling? It's maybe an easy way to start this is a hands raising. So who who feels? They're kind of taking a very broad approach to development and sort of studying it from all sides in the big picture. Okay, interesting. All right, and then how many people have uh, going into this wanting to kind of really focus, become an expert on one aspect of development or another? Okay, so there's quite a few don't knows there, um, and uh, more people on the on the generalist side. Um, well, that's, that's interesting. Um, I think the, the conversation that you could see online with the talk point about you know, what it's right to do, should, should you study and, and be a generalist or um, be much more of a, an expert on one thing, um, sort of reflects a broader debate and conversation that goes on within the development profession. Um, is development a kind of inherently integrated, complex process? Or can we make progress on one individual thing at a time? Um, I'll just give you a few examples, maybe, from different um, uh, sides of, of, of the discussion there. So picking up one I was involved in, um, uh, Lawrence mentioned it briefly there. In 2005, I was working um, in 10 Downing Street on preparing for the Glen Eagles Summit, which had a big Africa focus, uh, as some of you may know. One of the things that we did in preparation for that, and in fact that predated my time when that was kicked off, um, uh, is establish a commission for Africa who produced a report which sort of um, provided the, uh, the fact basis, as it were, for the, for the debate amongst G8 leaders around um, support for Africa. And it was pretty explicit in saying that there'd been a kind of history of development fads and that that hadn't worked. And that what you needed was development on several key fronts all at the same time. 
Now, more recently, um, the Mo Ibrahim Governance Index uses the same four pillars, essentially. Security, accountability or governance, um, economic progress and human development. And he also talks very passionately about the importance of balanced development across those four uh, areas and, about, and, and the risks of imbalanced development. In fact, a um, year or two ago, um, he went so far as to say that um, their report had done a pretty good job of predicting where um, the Arab Spring was going to happen by pointing out the instability inherent in very uneven um, uh, development. Uh, and in those cases, it usually meant high levels of economic and human development and low levels of, uh, of democracy and accountability. Um, in a very different way, uh, the Jeff Sachs Millennium Village approach, which I'm sure is familiar to lots of you, um, is similar to this. It's, to say, it's about saying, you know, you know, do lots of different things at the same time, in the same place, if you really want to make the, uh, the big gains around development. And um, in some ways, that's analogous to the kind of 1970s um, community development approach, and some of you may have studied um, some of that or heard about that. Um, I know there's, there's people here... Um, here at IDS who, who talk and think a lot about complexity theory and, and do say, you know, these things are, are very integrated. On the other side of things, on the other side of this discussion, um, people actually trying to run governments um, in developing countries and some of those um, uh, people that they have advising them will often say to you, trying to do everything is just a way of not doing anything. Um, we have to focus on a few priorities if we really want to see a difference made, um, really make progress, um, and actually achieve something. Um, again, coming at that side of the debate from a different angle, uh, we have the Global Fund, for example. Um, part of the uh, development effort, which is extremely focused on three diseases, HTB and malaria. Um, and by being very focused on those three diseases, has saved millions and millions of lives in the 10 years that it's, that it's existed. Um, sometimes people talk a lot as well about a kind of more business-like approach to development. You hear that said a fair bit these days, um, and in fact is often linked to the Gates Foundation that I work, uh, that I work for now. And again, that tends to emphasise that if you want to make a, an impact, you need to choose where you're going to have a focus, really become uh, experts on that, make a difference, drive delivery there. Um, So you can see there's, there's two sides of this debate a little bit, and, and how it often comes out, for us anyway, in the case, and it often comes out in this uh, sector of health, the right way to approach health. And um, some people would put the argument, you know, there's no point saving, um, saving me from malaria if I'm going to die of TB uh, the next day. What you need to do is fix the whole health system. Uh, somebody else might say, well, you know, Kids die of specific diseases. They die of diarrhea, 
or did I have pneumonia, or did I have malaria, specific diseases that you have to do something specific about, in the same way that here in the UK, in this country, um, you have um, uh, hospitals and doctors and consultants who are experts in specific diseases um, that, that are uh, major killers in, in this country. Um, so what do you think? In t now, we're not talking so much now about um, uh, what you should study and what you are studying, but this broader question about um, does development need people who are going to focus on one area and be real experts? Should it be something um, uh, much broader, much more integrated, more systemic, more complex? And yeah, let's see if I can warm up have a bit more of a conversation with you about, about that. Any thoughts on that? Anyone want to argue strongly for one side or the other? Go on, great. Like you were talking yourself into in red, no, in red, yeah, yeah. thinking about coming in. Uh, no, um, well, I tend to agree more on the necessity to specialize. Um, I think uh, you need to put order in, in the chaos of you know of development. Uh, there's so many issues, and you need to prioritize. But I think the big question is what's behind you know uh, the selection of issues. Know, there are power relations behind that, there are interests behind that, and, um, and sometimes it's very hard to be able to you know, specialise without considering all of these other implications. Um, but personally, yeah, I think it's important to prioritise and do that in a democratic way, from a bottom-up perspective maybe. Uh, so things need to change in that sense. Mm, that's very interesting, thanks. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, first, I want to believe that why can't you have both? You, there's a way to balance both. You need both someone who looks at the system perspective and people who, for example, health systems. You need someone who can integrate the multiple systems and look at the entire service delivery, um, different uh, diseases, and how they work with the government. You need, some, you need specialists in that to look at the entire system. You, have, you can have specialists in the system, and you can have specialists in an issue. And, and you need someone who can talk about the best ways to reach people with a certain disability or something. But you really need someone who can also look at the bigger picture. There's room for both. There are enough people in development to look at both. Anyone? someone is you know, by profession trained as an expert, uh, for example, a doctor, 
very first idea, they cannot probably generalize. They, they might be just, they might have this view of, you know, all the problems can be solved through sewage. So I, 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 I think, I think, you know, uh, there has to be some kind of general uh, perspective. So, uh, so I mean, you know, to, uh, as I say, it, you know, it depends on what, what involvement you are, you know, you know, what's your involvement. If you are managing a project, if you're or, you know, making a broad problem, mm. you cannot be an expert in I mean, I think those are all great perspectives. I, I mean, I think that it's, it's dead right that when you think about, you know, the individual household or the individual person, from their perspective, development feels like one thing. It's their life. And, you know, they want to deal with the services they receive in a, in a kind of integrated way. Um, but as I was saying, I mean, I think, um, yeah, if you kind of look very, very broad, you can, you can feel almost, you know, if you're a... If you're a decision maker, policy maker, that kind of thing, trying to allocate resources, you can feel kind of um, uh, paralyzed if, uh, if, uh, if it's too broad as well. And, and I, th I, think, I think you're right that therefore, what we do need is the right kind of balance uh, of, uh, of, of both of those. Um, I think, yes, development's very complex. There's lots of interdependencies. Um, if we just focus on kind of one um, big priority, one single dimension, I mean, it, it, it's definitely not going to work. But at other times, to really kind of push things forward, um, you do need a team of people, perhaps, or an organization who can really be experts on that and, uh, and push that forward. Um, so I agree, I agree. I think there's, there's got to be room for all of this. And, um, uh, and, and there really aren't um, single silver bullets and there's just one thing um, it's just a, a nice example I just want to show you here I don't know how can you see that okay you can kind of see the most important thing okay which is this little circle what, what this is is just a snapshot of um, the interactive online um, site of the it, Ibrahim Index of African Governance. Um, do people, are people familiar with the Mo Ibrahim Index? Some of you anyway. Um, so, uh, using a kind of wide range, I can't remember, maybe 80, 100 different indicators or something, they, they um, uh, assess all countries in Africa each year um, uh, and give them a score and then they rank, they rank them. And um, as you can see, the they do that in four different categories, red being safety and rule of law, yellow, orange being participation in human rights, green being um, economic opportunity, and blue being human development, so health and education primarily. Um, and if you, if you get the chance to kind of go on the website and just flip through some of the different countries, um, you can get an interesting sense of um, these different wheels for each, for each country. And one of the things I think um, you'll spot there is that um, his point about balanced development um, and, and not uh, being able to focus on any one single answer <coughs> to, to development um, becomes very clear and very visual. And, and I think 
one thing I like is that um, you can kind of you can choose any of those four categories as being what you might see as your ultimate goal. I mean, for some people it might be health, for, for somebody else it might be kind of civil rights and accountability. Whatever, whichever one you want to pick as, the, as, as what you want to see as the, the ultimate outcome. And then you think about, well, what do I need to do on the other three to, to get me there? And I think you'll find, if you, if you play around with it, um, and it's fun, you can, you can play around with this quite a bit, um, that there's no single other one of those categories that's going to kind of be the key for you. Um, it, it's not going to be sufficient in every case to have made progress on one of those other categories in order to um, make progress on the one that you're focused on. But nor is it going to be impossible to make progress um, in all circumstances um, uh, on, say, health if you haven't necessarily made progress on safety and rule of law. So no, there's, there's no kind of... Um, area which is so important that it's either necessary or sufficient for this kind of balanced approach. And the overall sense is more that you need a kind of critical mass of balanced development. You need to be making <laughs> progress on a broad enough front for there to be a kind of mutual support and resilience between them. Um, but it's, um, uh, it's not going to serve you well to kind of uh, think that there's um, one single thing that if you could just work out what's the thing to focus on, that would be the answer. Um, and just bringing it back to studying development, therefore, um, I think it means that, you know, some of you, as you put your hands up, will want to be more uh, generous in the way you approach development. Some of you will want to be more specialists and experts. But a key thing, in a way, um, is to um, remember that's um, a choice you're making rather than a choice that the um, uh, that is inevitable, and um, and to remember the other side of the coin, whichever way you decide to go. Um, and I would say, um, for, I suppose I probably am more on that kind of broad approach. Look, that's been my career, um, and, um, and as several of you put your hands up saying the same, the one thing it's maybe worth saying to you is that um, a, a risk of that kind of a career can be that you're a little bit more detached, I would say, from the impact. Um, uh, if, you become, if you're a real expert in, a, in an area, in a field, and you're kind of implementing a projects or research on the ground, I think you can probably feel like you're getting that kind of day-to-day -day feedback and sense of physical change um, much more regularly than um, uh, uh, if you're in the kind of role that um, is thinking a lot more about policy and systems at a bigger level. Um, now I do that despite that. Um, I share it with you while you're still at a position possibly of, of making those choices because it, 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 it potentially is one of the consequences of that choice. Okay, I'm going to move on to another um, one of the kind of issues or debates um, that I think is came out of the, um, the talking point again um, um, and which I think is uh, again holds more uh, you know, wider relevance um, in, the, in the development community. 
Now, this is a slightly longer quote, I'm afraid, but I guess I'll read it out for people who are listening online. Um, but I'd sum it up as the, the question of, um, should we focus on theory or practice? Um, what this person wrote was, as an international development practitioner, in reality, a large percentage of my time is spent negotiating with governments and securing permissions, managing diverse teams and HR ups and downs associated with this, logistics negotiations, monitoring security, dealing with donors who, who may or may not have a good understanding of life in the field. Many former international development students I have met have been very surprised by the reality of this. And yet, even if they do not have to deal with it because they end up working for the World Bank with diplomatic status, it's critical that they understand that this is often the reality of how international development works or doesn't work in practice. Um, so, there's a perspective saying that, you know, development's really about the kind of rolling up your sleeves, um, doing those really practical things on the... Um, on the ground. Um, now, I think we can set aside um, uh, an extreme version of the argument says that there's therefore no room for theory and for academic study and development um, whatsoever. But I think it raises a, a, you know, a more a real question and a more interesting question about what's the right balance between theory and practice. Um, um, and I suppose in that I, I'm already assuming that there's a kind of built-in value in most of us that what we want to do is ultimately change the world and have an impact on, um, um, on the world. Um, I don't know, I'd be interested if there are any perspectives from, from any of you on what, what do you think is that, that kind of right balance between studying development and just getting stuck in. A few smiles. Okay, okay, go on. I'm just thinking, I mean, I remember to have access to opportunities in development nowadays uh, without studying development, it's very hard. If you haven't got, you know, uh, I don't know, if you haven't got the theoretical approach, you need to have access to the opportunities. So it depends on, you know, the circumstances uh, that, you know, if you, if you found a job uh, early on in your career in development, then, you know, you can have opportunities to work on the practical side of it uh, from the beginning. If, if you haven't, which is, you know, which can, at least here, I guess, think the Considerable amount of students haven't had the chance to really get into mm. the high-level practice or any kind of practice in development. Then, um, you know, I think theoretical uh, well, knowledge is very important. You need to you need to have a, you know uh, study in, a, in an interesting place. And um, so it's yeah, it's, it's really hard balance. But my point is that to have access to opportunities nowadays, is, if you haven't got the, you know a degree, let's say, or mm -hmm. some kind of theoretical background, it's very hard to have. Uh, that's an interesting perspective. So th this comment maybe came from someone who started their career a bit longer ago. Uh, interesting, yeah. Anyone else want to come in? Yeah. Okay, yeah, go on, and then I'll come to you. Go on. It just strikes me that 
um, you could see that it's quite a shallow kind of comment because behind each of those little tasks, <coughs> negotiating with government, HR ups and downs, there's whole bodies of theory and concepts behind each of those. Mm. I mean, how you negotiate with government <coughs> has a lot to do with how you think about government, governance, all those sorts of things. Mm. So the idea that it's somebody's mindlessly going through a life, I negotiate with government on a day-to-day -day basis, or I deal with human resource issues, or I you know, deal with the donors. You can approach those tasks, which need to be done in very different ways, depending on your understanding of concepts, theory, and so on. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's really a very one-dimensional story that they're giving there. Hmm. And while those jobs need to be done, they can be done I would suggest in very, very different ways, depending on what kind of background and understanding you have of the world. Mm, yeah. On the other hand, if you're going to work in development, you're going to be dealing with institutions. And this kind of crap is a lot of what institutions have to deal with. And so if you're not studying that and understanding that, you're living a life of studying ideal institutions rather than real institutions. That you know, anyone in a de development ministry or uh, Ministry of Health or you know anybody who's trying to get a grant is having to deal with that kind of um, <coughs> suboptimal or dysfunctional type of institution. So if you don't understand that, you're missing something very important in the story. I would say, even in the study of development. And you were going to come in, Danny. I was just going to say that often in theory, like what really um, frustrates me in academics is how we keep talking about the ideal systems, the ideal theories, and this is how things need to be done. But again, it's like similar to that. When you actually go on ground, that's not how things function. And which is why I chose ideas because the, the people who teach us are also those who sort of work on ground and know how things function. And the case studies that they bring forth and the case studies they give in terms of the um, readings that we have, they sort of give us an idea as to how things are in reality. So if you don't have that fine balance between theory and practice, you either just get stuck in studying theory and theorizing things and not really helping people on ground improve the system. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, and there was you and another behind it. So yeah? Um, yeah, I, uh, I completely agree with the dichotomy between uh, academic study and um, I, and I think the impression that I get with a lot of development studies is that uh, it's, a, it's sort of like a mindset and we, we learn a lot about theories and ways to approach the world, which is valuable. But um, one of my personal uh, uh, fears and hesitations about even studying what I'm studying um, is that it, it is separated from the actual practices of like day-to-day um, -day resource management and negotiations with the government. As and so it's just a matter to me of framing the, the, the arguments in how you actually look end up going about it. I feel like it, it is somewhat distanced from um, acknowledging for like international student, international development student who enters the, enters the workforce surprised that they have to deal with invoices and travel logistics after they've had all these grand theories. Um, you know, there's only so much that you can like appreciate the, the sort of um, higher level theories that you've been learning and then apply that. But I think um, academics could do better in helping students frame that. Um, and personally, I would, I would 
no, I don't know, I would enjoy some management like courses mm -hmm. in addition to all these theory courses, like, you know, just to help, help sort of center that. Cool, thanks. Yeah. Uh, well, just following on from several of the comments made relating to this particular quote here, I would hope that uh, development studies as taught here does open a bit of a world on these soft, giving you soft skills and understand how to do these things more effectively, like understanding diversity and inclusion, and perhaps the power relations between governments and donors and all of these sorts of things, so that you are better doing these sorts of things, which we often know are unavoidable uh, in development. And I think that's all part of the job. Being a better, a better negotiator, understanding the background. Mm -hmm. Before studying development studies, and he was um, my uh, classmate of development studies. And he said, Yeah, if he knew the kind of development studies while uh, he was working, he will achieve, achieve more, eff uh, he will achieve more effective results. But um, without experience, he also said, uh, Without experience, he couldn't. Uh, he couldn't. What's your development studies? And both, in my opinion, both pra practical experience and development studies are required to get a more effective and more higher results. Mm -hmm. Well, I. I um I think those are all great, great perspectives, and uh, and and have a lot of uh, a lot of validity. I I um, for me this kind of uh, again kind of talks to a kind of broader uh, debate that we sometimes uh, find ourselves having about how you kind of turn ideas and theory into practice in development, and um, you could um, you could say that the Gates Foundation is is um, quite far towards the kind of theory end of this spectrum. Um, we certainly do think that research, technology, innovation, um, new ideas can have a huge impact um, on development. Uh, we probably invest a bigger share in research than most typical development agencies. Um, we think that that's where a lot of the really transformational um, change can come from. For example, um, the new meningitis uh, A vaccine introduced in West Africa in 2010, um, we hope will save up to 15,000 lives a year. And it's those kind of um, <coughs> new ideas, um, new inventions um, that can have um, uh, such a big impact. But, uh, hopefully you can see this, this is a blog, the, the foundation has an overall blog called Impatient Optimists, and this is a particular one written by our CEO, Jeff Rakes, on what he calls, um, as you can see down here, the innovation pileup. I'll just read a, a short quote from it. He says, um, over the last decade, we've invested in one of the fattest pipelines of life-saving technologies the health and the development world has ever seen. A new rapid diagnostic test test for tuberculosis that will help reduce transmission of the disease, 
better tools to enable women to plan their families, even improved toilets that provide clean sanitation for the world's poorest people. In all, the Foundation and its partners have developed more than 100 new innovations that are available today or scheduled to be introduced by the end of the decade. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. None of these innovations will make any difference if they can't reach the people we aim to serve. At the Foundation, this challenge has been dubbed the Innovation Pile-Up, and solving it is one of my top priorities as CEO. We now have a team dedicated um, to speeding up the delivery of existing innovations and finding new system delivery models for entirely new innovations. And we call that team Integrated Delivery. And I hope it shows a little bit the way that we're, we're ourselves struggling with this question around what, what's the right balance to strike um, between um, uh, investing in the sort of the scientific um, uh, pursuit and analysis uh, and invention of new ideas and thinking about the kind of day-to-day -day practicalities of actually turning that into a difference in people's lives on the ground. Um, in fact, even though I said we... Um, you know, invest a bigger share in research than probably most development agencies. We did a recent survey of our grant portfolio and we still probably spend about twice as much on what we would call kind of downstream delivery than we do research. Um, so, so most organisations are doing even more than that. And yet arguably there still is a big innovation pile-up um, You've probably heard people talking about the policy implementation gap. You know, there's a lot of supposedly world-class, great policy on how you do almost anything you could think of out there. It's been done by really smart people, but it's not actually what's happening. There's that huge policy implementation gap. Um, and so, you know, it does feel like, um, yes, we need both, but that maybe the balance is still not right between theory and practice and that we need uh, a bigger proportion focused on delivery and practice but that, that probably does and some of the comments have touched on this a little bit probably include study and research into practice um, and how you achieve delivery and how you um, um, ensure that some of those innovations or, or policies are actually um, uh, put into effect. Um, I do think that potentially um, uh, for people who, who see their career um, largely continuing in the more um, academic and research um, side of things, um, that this is just a bit of a reminder um, uh, that um, it is important always to be thinking about how it's ultimately going to make a practical difference in the world. I'm sorry, that's not meant to seem um, uh, kind of patronising or anything. Um, but um, I think, as I say, we, the Gates Foundation itself, has, and this is why it's not meant to be patronising, because we, we've had to learn for ourselves that actually just coming up with great ideas is not enough on its own. Um, you can't just rely that somebody else will come along and say, that is a really good idea, we're going to go and take it away and, uh, and put it into practice. Um, actually, if you're not thinking about how an idea is going to get turned into practice, 
right at the early stages of developing those, those, those ideas, the chances are it's not quite such a good idea. Um, Is that because mm. you can only have realistic ideas if they've got legs? And I'm thinking of some of the projects I was involved in in the Middle East. And some of them took off and lasted for a couple of years, three years. But it all depended upon the practitioners, the people with legs. And while they were there, and they were satisfying them, and they could see the relevance of it, then they could sustain it. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the longevity wasn't very long. Mm -hmm. It could last three years, and then people got promoted, or people had got their ideals satisfied. <coughs> now that's quite different from something which seems to me behind what you're talking about, and that is how you bring in uh, governmental levels, where legs somehow uh, are very different. And at the governmental level, then you get um, individuals coming in, but somehow it's uh, incorporated with structures. And the people in the system with the legs have got the structures. And those structures, they can, they can function, but when you get some people who are positive, the legs in the structures, then, then that's fine, that can work well. But it doesn't always work out like that in terms of longevity, because you get people coming into a career-minded, and you come in then with um, personal antagonisms, or religious antagonisms, all sorts of cultural antagonisms. But you need the structure, but then somehow or another, parties and, and sectors come in, and you, it's very difficult then to sustain the vision. Now, I don't know quite how you balance that. So I just... Richard's going to help. <laughs> I think there's a real area for character advantage in many ways. I mean, on the one hand, you've got people who've used the technology, the, the, uh, the bright idea and the rest of it. These people are usually weak on behaviours, incentives, culture, history, why institutions operate the way they do, particularly in weak environments and so on. I see, I see a very natural partnership between an organisation that thinks like IDS about institutions and incentives and why people do what they do and the people who come up with the idea that um, whatever it is, is, the, is really going to be helpful if we can only roll it out. I mean, goodness knows how many things that, that we finance, the British government, somebody's good idea of some technology which went absolutely nowhere because people didn't think about why they would it take it up. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great space here, I guess. Mm. Um, and, and going back to your point, I mean, you're, 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 you're talking about, you know, one of the really big challenges in development, which is about sustainability uh, of, of, of everything that we do, aren't you? And I think that you're right, sustainability usually relies on embedding ideas and, and innovations in some kind of structure or system. Uh, not always government, often government, um, but it could also be in the private sector and it can also just be in society and community. But Somehow it needs, whether it's understanding behaviour or incentives or, or those kind of things Rich is mentioning, it needs those kind of hooks into the, in, into the world if it's going to be able to be sustained beyond essentially some kind of a pilot phase, even if, even if that's quite a long and well-funded 
part phase, absolutely. Um, okay, I'm just going to move on to um, another another issue. Um, um, we'll see. I think potentially this is a, um, a, a tougher one, and I sort of sum it up as the kind of global versus local um, question. Here's one of the quotes from the from the talking point. It says, um, any study in power is the starting point for initiating change and agency. Naturally, the questions that follow are how and where. And it's, those, it's the points about agency and where that I kind of want to focus on here. Um, I think it's uh, a statement we hear a lot and um, it's kind of almost self-evidently true that... Um, Real change for development is only going to come from within the developing countries themselves. You've heard that uh, a lot. Um, whether you hate aid or defend aid, you will probably agree with that, um, that concept of where, where real change has to happen. Um, now, some of you um, are probably... Um, uh, take a small gamble, um, from developing countries and are thinking about returning home after you finish these courses to uh, implement some of what you learn and, and create change. Um, but perhaps not all of you are going to do that. And that raises interesting questions about um, what can... Um, uh, people working in development, um, studying or working it in, in other ways, who are out, essentially outside agents, um, what impact can they, uh, can they really have? Now, um, as I workshop recently, actually, uh, it, was all, it was all about um, uh, how to invest in African civil society. It was, it was largely a discussion amongst... Um, Foundations and a, and a few other types of funders about um, how to invest in African <coughs> civil society. Um, and someone there called uh, Chico Malunga um, from something called the Capacity Development Consultants, uh, a company based in Malawi. And he actually argued that the causes of poverty in Africa were 50% based in Africa and 50% based outside Africa. Um, I don't think he necessarily meant precisely 50-50, but his point was um, it's not 100% either inside Africa or outside Africa and that we needed to address both. So I think if you take that, I, I'd, I'd certainly agree with that. I'd certainly sign up to that. Um, that means certainly one of the things that, you, uh, that we can do if we are... Um, trying to be agents for development based outside developing countries is focus on some of those causes of global poverty which do originate in the developed world. Um, and a few examples might be global trade rules, um, corruption, maybe, arms sales. Um, there's a lot of things you could probably um, think about. But it's more complicated to think about... Um, the causes which are within developing countries themselves. And can outsiders make any difference to those? Um, I think certainly study and research can add to the understanding of uh, problems and causes of poverty in developing countries. 
Um, uh, as we've heard already in some of the conversation, um, IDS, uh, as well as some others, are, are, are good at um, having some very local roots into some of the kind of research that's done to ensure that you're getting that kind of local um, understanding uh, and analysis into uh, the overall kind of uh, study and research um, that's being done. Um, but we don't usually just want to understand problems, we want to solve them too. Um, and can outside agents actually solve problems um, in developing countries? Um, and that, in a sense, brings us onto one of the really big debates certainly going on in this country, in the UK right now, about what's the role of, of outside agents and, and what's the role of aid. What role can aid play um, um, in solving problems, um, the origins of which are within developing countries. Um, now, for the last seven or more years, all three political parties in the UK have supported a policy of increasing aid to 0.7% of this country's income. And in fact, that was just reiterated again yesterday by the Chancellor. Um, the target date for actually achieving that is only three months away. Um, I guess we can say it's probably going to happen now. I think you can say that, that that's fair, fairly safely. Um, does everyone think it should happen, everyone here? Um, some people, um, as, as aid in the UK has increased, um, it's certainly come under more scrutiny than ever before, quite rightly. Um, and some critics um, have gone so far as to say aid is actually counterproductive in the development process. Um, so that's my next question. Um, who thinks that uh, um, outside agency can actually make a difference in developing countries? And who thinks that aid is actually largely counterproductive in the development process? Could we discuss the questions one at a time? Because they're actually quite different. Different. Well, why, why don't you explain why they are? Because that would be... Well, um, I mean, my answer to the first one is that, yes, certainly, um, outside agents can make a difference to developing countries. Uh, they can mess things up big time. And so if they can mess things up big time, they can do things better rather than worse. So that's, that's part of the answer to it. The second is that I think the 0.7% is a very important uh, thing symbolically. Uh, it's, it's quite a lot of money, but it's not a vast amount of money. It's less than 1% of the budget. Uh, and I would say that the, the scrutiny that uh, countries come under, like at the moment Uganda uh, and Rwanda, uh, is part of that commitment. So you get two benefits. You get the aid and you get the additional public debate and scrutiny of governments that are mis misappropriating government, the, the money. So I think both of those things uh, are important. And I've forgotten the second question. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean one, one, I suppose, was a subset of the other. I mean, the, the, um, I, I was trying to use aid, I suppose, as a, as a pretty topical in this country right now example of, of that broader question of, you know, what can outside agents do? And you're right, that obviously aid is not the only tool you necessarily have, but is a, it, is a, it's kind of a big one, at least on one measure. Um, 
I mean, it's big-ish, but it's not that big. I mean, trade policy yeah, is a much big, more important yeah, issue. And if you could sort out the European Union's trade policy, that would be much more significant than, you know, whether Britain was giving 0.3% or 1.1%. Uh, it's hugely more important. So I think it's a, it's a symbolic thing and an important thing, but it's only one of a subset of much broader and more important issues. Yeah, sure. Other thoughts? What we can, what are the challenges of, of being an agent from outside developing countries, tackling those problems? Yeah. I think that's a good if point. If we define it that way, then we're going to struggle to pinpoint where, where the change happens. Because I don't think, I don't, you know, like some of the students here may be seen as outside agents when when they return home, say, like if they return home, mm -hmm. they might not, might be a Tanzanian working in India. You know, how, how does that work? Are they inside, outside? I, I'm not sure the world is quite divided in that way. And, and I, I definitely agree with Robert's point about a lot, there's a lot of talk about aid, but actually, Again, it's, it's more complicated when you, when you need to look at trade and environment and climate change and all these other issues as well. Kind of in it together, really. I don't think we, sh we should look at each other as the other, nor the other over there, that person. Because um, it, it doesn't allow for that, that dialogue and that debate that we need to be having for us to solve problems that are essentially everybody's problems, not just you know, simply small corners of work. Yeah, I agree. I like that. I mean, I, 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 I also agree with uh, what you said at the beginning, um, Roger. I think um, the, uh, the, the, the it's, it's good and, and appropriate that um, aid and development more generally in this country is coming under more and more scrutiny as the government invests more in it. Um, the downside of some of the... Uh, um, uh, additional debate and critique on it is that it, it, it does get a little polarised and simplistic and um, um, so partly what you were pointing out so thank you for that um, but um, the, the question which I mean it often seems to boil down to this question of you know is aid good or bad and um, uh, I think what you're, you're saying is you know sometimes it can be good and sometimes it can be bad so Let's try and do a lot more of the good and a lot less of the bad um, um, is definitely the way to look at it. Let me come on to the last uh, one of the issues, which I think uh, got raised in the thing. And um, uh, I think possibly, we'll see, this might be the one that um, gets you talking the most. So here, here's the last quote from the talking point. Oh, oh sorry. Going to show. 
So this person said, um, the rise of development education degrees as a response to the proliferation of the development industry not only helps create jobs for nationals of the developed world, in the developing world, at the expense of local employment, it also siphons money from these economies by influencing local policies, not limited to trade and lucrative investment deals for these nations. A small elite class in the developing world benefit from these deals, but no poverty reduction or alleviation ever takes place. The amount of corruption scandals related to NGOs exceeds expectations both within local and international NGOs. And now that's quite a strong um, opinion. And I suspect that they'd be, or certainly other people would be prepared to substitute the word NGO for any other kind of organisation and agency you could think of too. Um, it's a really tricky one. I don't know about you. It certainly, you know, makes me feel a bit naturally uncomfortable. But um, actually, I do think it's an important question to, to think about um, if you're thinking about career in development. Um, this person talks about the development industry. How many of you think of development as an industry, as a business? One, two, three, four. Not most of you. Okay. Um, I'd kind of agree it's hard not to see it as an industry. I mean, it's worth billions of dollars in, or pounds in this country, billions and billions of dollars uh, globally. Um, the uh, Telegraph newspaper here has run a series of short stories recently about the Six and seven figure salaries earned by consultants in the um, in the development um, uh, business, and um, not so long ago, just in one single week in October, I myself um, uh, found myself uh, two days on the trot, eating very very posh dinners in very very fancy West End venues in London, talking to lots of other nice and interesting people about, about development and poverty. Um, and then at the end of the week, um, went on holiday um, with the air miles I picked up over the previous um, two years of punishing travel. Um, now, that's not why I went into development to do those things. Um, I started, as I said, as a civil service on about £18,000 a year, I think it was at the time. I had no idea, never asked what my kind of salary prospects were as I started that career. And I'm sure none of you are motivated by, um, by, the, by the money either. Um, on the other hand, um, would we get the right and the best people working on these issues if development organisations couldn't pay salaries that are at least in touch with the kind of alternative careers that people could choose. Certainly at the Gates Foundation we understand that we need to be able to attract people with private sector experience. If you want to do that, um, uh, you have to um, have some appreciation of, uh, of, the, of the market that you're recruiting from. I certainly don't think that you should have to live on minimum wage in order to not be a traitor to the sort of poor people that you're trying to help. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really important to remember 
how far removed we sometimes therefore are from the, from the lives of the people um, that we're trying to help. And, um, and make sure that we're conscious about that. And also how we're using our resources. Um, um, small savings um, that might seem very insignificant in lots of our organisations can be you know, multiples of the incomes of the people that we actually think that we are trying to help. Um, and at Gates Foundation, we call that good stewardship, making sure that, we, that we're thinking about that. Um, for the last couple of years, I've actually um, taken a challenge called Live Below the Line for one week um, uh, for each of the last couple of years, which involves um, just uh, having only a pound a day or $1.25 equivalent a day for your food and drink for a week. Um, now, a lot of people have been ready to criticise that as a stunt you know, it's, you're not really understanding um, anything. Um, but a lot more people, I must say, have said that they think that's a, a good way of just being reminded um, of uh, just how ridiculously low a dollar a day poverty line really is and that, and that anybody, let alone a billion people, are expected to live on, on that kind of income. Now, you'll find your own ways of staying in touch uh, with the the reality of the, of the, of the uh, lives of the people that you're trying to um, help. But I, I do think it's important to not um, just dismiss people who have this kind of a critique of, of it being an industry. Um, because they actually do help us um, uh, keep our industry honest and alert to waste and the kind of responsibility that goes with what we're, uh, that what we're doing. And, that, and that's, uh, that's very important. Um, so I'm going to conclude there. Um, I, um, in lots of these examples, as some of you also said, uh, my, view is, my view tends to be that, I mean, some of the Questions were kind of, you know, deliberately uh, overstated, false dichotomies, perhaps. Um, and uh, you know, I do think uh, that it's really important to see see how you bring these, you know, different perspectives together, often to solve lots of these problems. Sometimes that can really look like you're actually sort of ducking hard hard choices, um, but I, I don't think it is, and I think it's important to, um, um, to understand um, uh, why it's not. I think it, it's, it's partly about um, genuinely understanding the complexity of the issues that we're dealing with in the world um, that we're dealing with. I also think it's about understanding the kind of reality of, um, of people. Um, sometimes trying to um, uh, change the world, we can spend a lot of time thinking about um, how people should be, what the world should be like. And um, we, can, we can get very moral if we're not careful sometimes um, about it. Um, and I'm not sure that's very effective. Um, I have a friend who um, founded a company that works on what you might sort of call green communications, um, uh, environmental uh, sustainability and that kind of thing. The, the mission statement of her company is uh, making sustainable development so desirable it becomes normal. 
um, which I think is great. Um, and the point she's trying to get across is we won't get most people to live more sustainably by trying to persuade them it's the right thing to do. You only get the whole world living that way um, by persuading them it's something that they want to do. And I think a similar point could be made about achieving um, any real change in the world, um, including ending extreme poverty. Um, I think if we want to change things, we have to go and interact with the world as it really is, not as, it sh as we hope people should be or um, should behave. And there's a really vital role, and this is where I want to, to bring this to a close, for studying that world and giving all of us an honest and accurate picture of what the world really is, as opposed to maybe what we assume and think it is. Um, that students like you and institutions like the IBS can contribute. So I'll stop there and hopefully we still have some more time for questions and uh, which I'm very happy to either be related to some of the things I've been talking about or more broadly if people are interested in asking about the Gates Foundation or other things, whichever way you'd like nice. to go. Thank you, Laura. We've got about 15 minutes for questions about anything. Yes, Roger. Laurie, having spent all my working life until now, well, 12 years I was working for government, and um, I don't think government is the immoral dimension of it, but previously I was working with um, church-based organisations, and I think you framed things wrongly in your last point by uh, implying that the moral is an ineffective or uh, unhelpful approach to trying to improve the world. And I think the point is much more that you've got to try to bring the moral uh, together with the attractive rather than making the moral the kind of hair-shirt option. Because I think if you take out the moral impetus towards... You know, we used to get into trouble with the charity commissioners because they, um, uh, for example, uh, Chris and Aid were challenged uh, when we were um, challenging apartheid. They said that this was a political option, not just a development issue. Uh, and um, that we had no, uh, no right to make moral judgments about the policies of other countries uh, in the development work that we were doing. We challenged that on the basis by saying that uh, yeah, they said it wasn't educational what we were doing. We put out an educational pack on the damage done by apartheid. And they said it wasn't educational because it didn't put both points of view. The director of Christianity wrote back to the charity commissioners and said that did this mean that in all our work on world poverty we had to put the arguments for hunger, starvation, uh, oppression of women, uh, as well as um, arguing a moral case that those things are not desirable uh, and ought to be eradicated. I agree with you that coming over as kind of all moralistic and turning up to a meeting with, you know, uh, overseas business people in a hair shirt and uh, stressing that you've walked to the meeting and so on is probably not a good form of communication. But I think the thing is to bring the moral, the right things to do, uh, together with the attractive and the practical, rather than setting up um, what I think was a false dichotomy in how you expressed things at the end of your talk. Can I take a group of them? Or you want to do one by one? It's up to you. 
Um, I might reply to that one. <laughs> I feel like it's an important. I, I basically I agree with you, and uh, I'm uh, sorry if I was I probably kind of raced over it a bit too quickly there. Um, uh, I suppose though what I would hold on to is the fact that certainly in some of the things that we want to change in the world, you know, you need some kind of uh, political majority or other kind of um, you know broad constituency to get certain things done. And um, sometimes to build that constituency, it's going to be important to recognise that the main motivation for some of the people to be in that constituency is not going to be the same motive that we may have. But the more crucial thing is that they do the right thing. I, I still think that is true and, and that's important if you want to actually make uh, progress and change things in the world. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, I'm, not, I, I'm absolutely not saying that the moral compass is, is, a, is a bad thing. I think it's what brings most of us uh, into this. We just, I think, do need to sometimes recognise that it hasn't brought everybody into it and yet we need more than just us um, doing the right thing. That's better for, for, yeah, 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 thanks. Other questions, comments? I'd just like to comment about the fact that I think it's a real shame that there are more fellows here today because um, it would be really nice to sort of uh, hear their views on development education and what counts as development education. And I suppose something else I just wanted to add was the fact that I don't have a background in development. My background is in social care in this country. And that's the reason I left that was because it's just as much of an industry as what I have now, unfortunately, <laughs> discovered is the development industry. But nevertheless, there are examples in both industries all the time, people who know how to marry um, theory and research and what have you up here with being normal, yeah. practical down here. And as far as I'm concerned, they're the people who um, to paraphrase a parenting manual, um, that they know how to talk so that people will listen and listen so that people will talk. And I think it would have been a, a benefit to fellows at IDS possibly, not all of them clearly, but um, to have just been here today to begin to, have, to begin to have that sort of conversation because uh, that's something that I think could go a long way. So thank you for you know, raising it in the first place. Noted, Sarah. Noted. <laughs> well, okay, it's all been recorded, so you can play it to. Other comments or questions that we can edit out later on? <laughs> Kidding or not? Laurie, just one more. I mean, the Starbucks thing, I think, is really interesting yeah, from it's that point of view. Because, uh, you know, they're clearly. Uh, Starbucks were complying with the tax law in this country, and yet, uh, you know, it's a kind of, it, it is basically a triumph for moral outrage uh, that they're going to pay more tax than they really have to. Uh, and, you know, I think the thing about reputational damage is a real lever that people can use, uh, and it is highly relevant to the development uh, industry. 
Yeah, it is highly relevant. I mean, uh, yeah, the kind of uh, the kind of internal pricing stuff that goes on in multinationals and how that affects developing countries is certainly a big, big issue. Yeah. And now it's affecting the KPMG and PwCs as well. I saw that this morning. Sorry, I'm Okay, I think, we'll, I think we'll probably draw it to a close right now. Um, you say a couple of things, and join us, please, for a, a drink afterwards. There's some wine at the back. I mean, when I, Laurie, thank you very much for a really um, thought-provoking talk. I didn't think it wouldn't be thought-provoking. That's why we invited you. Um, and when I think about, so being, you've been very personal, and I've, I think I've really appreciated that, and I hope the rest of you have. It's not often that a speaker will talk about, will open up and be vulnerable and talk to their own experiences. Um, and when I think about, um, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time too, um, a lot longer than you have. And um, when I think of the areas where I've had the most impact or influence, it's been where you focus on an issue. Uh, so for me, it's nutrition. But you do it in a very wide-angle lens way. So you think about, okay, how does trade, how does governance, how does security, how does how do institutions, how does how does all that stuff affect what you're trying to, to contribute to? And I think being an IDS has really heightened my appreciation of the of understanding the politics behind the policy, as well as the technical economics and public health aspects of it all. And then, and then there's the thing that you think, well, can you actually teach 
And can you learn this, the skills of negotiation, communication, management, um, relationship building, and, and relationship leveraging? And I think you can. I think um, it's bringing all those three things together. When I think about you know, a, a very small percentage of the efforts I've made that have made a difference, it's when all of those things come together. And we probably could do a better job at IBS in thinking strategically about how to help you do those things together. I think we try hard. And I was, in the, I was at an alumni event in Washington, D.C. A, a month ago. And one of our graduates from two or three years ago who had just received an award, um, an Atlas Core Fellowship Award, gave a, gave a speech at the, at the alumni event. She said, the thing I learned most about at IBS was not the facts and figures and theories and concepts. It was how to think about development. It was how to think about the politics behind the policies, how to think about not only answering the questions, but whether it's the right question to even be addressing in the first place. And I think the talk you've given us, Laurie, is very much um, supporting and contributing to that perspective, but also with a bit of a challenge to us. And uh, it's a great challenge, and it's one that I certainly will reflect on, and I hope you all will. Um, so please join me in thanking Laurie for such a great talk.